Welcome to the Now Screening Podcast. During the course of this episode, we will be spoiling Tiger King and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. If you do not want to be spoiled for either of these shows, listen to only the 9 to 13 minute mark of the Tiger King discussion and the 49 to 54 minute mark discussion of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. You have been warned. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Now Screening Podcast, the name that we decided on six hours ago to call this thing, <laughs> since our previous idea uh, is already in use by four men in college talking about movies. We won't say the name, <laughs> but oh, yeah. it's the, already the title, in use. <laughs> the title that will go unnamed. Um, okay, so this is the Now Screening Podcast. Um, the idea of this podcast is that we are going to talk about movies. Wow, what an original idea. Um, so where I wanted to start today is introductions, so that you can put a name with a voice. So let's start with uh, JL. JL, let me uh, let me ask you uh, where are you where are you from, where are you living, and uh, why do you love movies? Sure. Uh, well, I'm JL Lacar. Uh, originally from, I guess we're all best friends from Ohio, but currently I'm in New Jersey. Um, I went to the Ohio State University where I studied human computer interaction and design thinking. And uh, I think why I like movies so much is that, you know, growing up, I was an orchestra, I was a visual artist. So, you know, being able to tell stories with sound and visuals alone um, was kind of my background. But then movies put like all that together, whether like writing, visuals and sound, music, everything is just put together into one um, really awesome and coherent story, which is why I love film. And then I'd say I guess my favorites would be the only ones consistently on my list are Kimi no Noa, Your Name, Makoto Shinkai, yeah. and then obviously uh, that one, and then Hot Fuzz by Edgar Wright. That's just such a fun buddy cop uh, movie that I just watch all the time. Hell yeah, dude. You you have some really fun uh, movie reviews. Um, <laughs> you... you, you you like a lot of things. My, and, yeah. My yeah. letterbox is not serious at all. Yeah. We'll, oh yeah. We'll I plug mean. those at the end. Stick around uh, for the letter for the the letterbox plugging. <laughs> uh, Andy. All right. It. All right. So my name is Andy Mulak. Um, I'm 23 years old. Um, I recently graduated from Ohio State with a degree in strategic communication. So hopefully I can use that in this podcast. <laughs> but um, I'm, I was born in Pittsburgh, but I've lived in Ohio since I was seven years old. So I think I can safely say I'm an Ohioan at this point. Okay. And I'm, I'm still living in Columbus. Um, and let's, the way that I got into movies, I guess, is that I think like growing up, I was a pretty like traditional nerd in the sense that like <laughs> I really enjoyed like reading and I would just like consume books and like I love being put into like a different world and that's not so much the case now because my attention span is like complete trash <laughs> but <laughs> but I I love movies and I think part of that is because we like grew up in like the streaming age and like I got to watch a lot of movies on Netflix and stuff that I maybe would have never otherwise seen. Like, I remember when I was like a teenager, like I watched like City of God on Netflix. I'm thinking like, 
I would have never <laughs> just come across that movie <laughs> if it hadn't been for that. Um, and, and then, you, you know, another never thing, the same. <laughs> and another thing is that, you know, I just feel like I naturally surrounded myself with people with similar interests. And like you guys, I hung out with people that love movies and just naturally became something that became a big part of my life. Oh. And then I don't, um, just a few of my favorites, just like off the dome are like, uh, these are such basic, like 20 something year old, like white guy choices, but I'm going to go with, uh, like drive social network, uh, most recently parasite. I love that. And then honestly, the one we're talking about today, later portrait of a lady on fire was fantastic in recent memory. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to say like all time. Well, it's amazing. That's all I got to (laughs) say. We'll get into it later. No spoilers, right? Yeah. Cool. So, uh, yeah, Uh, my name is Tyler Asbell and uh, I'm here with my two best friends, uh, JL and Andy, who you just met. Uh, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, just like these two. Uh, I studied chemistry and film at Purdue University, and I'm currently located in Ithaca, New York, getting my PhD in chemistry. Um, but yeah, that film degree uh, came apart really, or I guess it came together really organically. Um, you know, like Andy said, being part of the streaming era and being part of the information age, we just had access to so many movies. I had so so many movies I knew about and wanted to see in high school that I would have never been exposed to otherwise. And, you know, you get, you get one YouTube video recommending a Bong Joon-ho movie in your, (laughs) in your YouTube recommended feed. And then it's, it's like a whole rabbit. Oh my God. Like now, like seriously, one of the things that I do is just like watch clips on YouTube from like my favorite movies that I like, just, (laughs) I just like waste so much time doing that (laughs) all the time. (laughs) And like, and like when you're, when I was like 13 years old, like I, I was doing that with like the room. Like I was like, what the hell's the room? I'm trying to like figure this thing out. And so I guess that really opened the door for like, you know, uh, exposing myself to movies I haven't seen, but yeah, the, the film degree really helped, uh, cultivate, uh, what I would, what I would say is like a critical lens of movies. Um, I, uh, I really, I really like to analyze and dig deep into, into what makes movies that I love fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I guess some of my favorites, um, you know, basic nerd choice, Blade Runner. Uh, yep. And then I yeah. love Ingmar Bergman movies. So Persona and The Seventh Seal are two of the best films I ever made. I haven't seen those. I can't lie. Dude, they're so good. <laughs> we'll have on, to do a future episode on them. Those on the quarantine list for sure. They're yeah. incredible. Oh, my God. Oh, they're so good. Um, and then I think a really underrated movie that no one talks about how much of a freaking masterpiece it is is uh fritz lang's m which is another obscure film bro pick but oh my god it's like the best murder mystery ever made oh yeah that one's going on the list too (laughs) it's made in the 30s like no one talks about it but it is like oh it's it's so fantastic um okay cool so uh we got introductions out of the way i think a fun place to go next uh would be to tell this a uh, cute story of how we as a trio uh began this inseparable journey yes. of friendship uh you know we've been we've been friends very close friends since freshman year of high school which is nine years ago for all of us since that's we so 14. hard to believe it's insane but we the first movie the three of us saw together was actually <laughs> the original uh the avengers movie uh 2012 and 
the theater was so packed <laughs> that we ended up having to sit in the handicapped seating. Yeah, we did. <laughs> and we were praying that we didn't end up having to like get kicked out or like sit uh-huh. in the aisle or something. And it's uh it's it's pretty fun to see how far we've come from that. Um, that was such a great experience and like i'm just going off on a tangent here for a second but like i feel like one of the things that connected us is like yeah i ended up going to osu with jl but initially out of high school we all were at different colleges like i was a transfer student so i i seriously think one of the things that kept us connected i mean we, we we would have stayed in touch regardless but like we talk a lot about movies and we talk a lot about movies. Like that's one of the things that is always a constant in our conversations. Yeah. So I just think that's really cool. Hell yeah, man. Absolutely. Okay. Um, let's talk about a Netflix series that is taking our quarantine world <laughs> by storm. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Tiger King. (laughs) (laughs) This movie took the world by. I mean, this documentary took the world by storm. Like, and I think it came out at the exact right time during like quarantine because people are watching so much Netflix right now, and this is like the number one recommended thing on the on the platform. (laughs) This is like the biggest smash hit Netflix has had in so long since the fire documentaries right like yeah yeah and even those weren't as big as this like oh this no is not like, even close this is insane um so to start uh i'm gonna i'm gonna read this little uh blurb summary of tiger king so that everyone is aware of what the uh the plot is if you haven't seen it you should because it's absolutely nuts <laughs> uh but anyway so tiger king murder mystery or sorry murder mayhem and madness uh, titled on screen simply as Tiger King, is a 2020 true c- crime documentary miniseries about the life of zookeeper Joe Exotic. It was released on Netflix on March 20th, 2020. The series focuses on the small but deeply interconnected society of big cat conservationists like Carol Baskin, owner of Big Cat Rescue, and collectors such as Joe Exotic, whom Baskin accuses of abusing and exploiting wild animals. Um, okay. Like that, so, like that description alone is what pulls people in. Like <laughs> that just sounds absurd. Yeah. People owning tigers in their yeah. backyards, in their houses. And then, and then of course you go on social media and Twitter and you see pictures of these people and then you're like, <laughs> and you're like, and you're like, yeah, I need to see this. Like, <laughs> Like, so you see bef- what JL's using as his Zoom background right now. Yeah, I've got, uh, <laughs> we'll, I've got we'll the post man a picture himself, of it. Joe Exotic. Oh, he's tiger. beautiful. In his tiger print, blue tiger yeah. camo shirt. Oh, my God. Glorious. So, I think before we get into spoiling this, because there's nothing to talk about here that isn't spoiler intensive. Mm-hmm. At least nothing that's fun. I think we should all give a really quick, like, one sentence I review, I recommend or don't recommend it because of X reason. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. okay. JL, you want to go first? Sure. Um, I guess I would just recommend it if you want to see what the hype is about. I wouldn't say it's like the biggest masterpiece of a documentary, but trust me, you are not ready for what the hell happens. <laughs> I, I, yeah, mine is basically exactly the same. It's not perfect by any means. 
but you can't really watch this and not say it's entertaining. And it, and it gives you an inside look in like communities that don't really get a lot of attention in, in the United States. And it makes you wonder like what other like weird, like niche communities exist in the, in this country. And like, what are we missing? Because this has been going on a long time. And now right. all of a sudden, <laughs> now all of a sudden <laughs> we're focusing on this. Now, this tiger now everyone's a, a tiger yeah. buying. Sorry, that was more than one sentence. But yeah, no, if you, if you want to see a crazy community and just an interesting documentary, watch this. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I guess my review of it is going to be that a lot of Netflix shows and movies productions in general, just don't, they simply don't live up to the hype that social media builds them up to be. This is the one program I've found that exceeds (laughs) everything I've been told about it. It is not perfect. It's not flawless. I mean, I don't really even know how to critique a documentary. Like all of my film studying has been narrative filmmaking. So really, I don't really know how to say whether it's good or bad, but it's entertaining as hell. And it is nuts. It is, it is (laughs) crazy that this story even exists and is real and is here for us to watch. And I would say while we're stuck inside, there's not better television to watch. Yeah. And this is, and I, I finished this series really quick. And this is coming from a guy who's literally, I don't, I can't watch TV series. This is like a, a personal fault, but I just, I can't continue a story for more than like 20 episodes. Like I just, I hit a breaking point. Like I just can't do it. That's why I like movies, right? You sit down, you watch it, you're done. You think about it. Right. I, I I just, I don't know. So yeah, I watched this whole thing in one day and like, I I don't do that often either, but it it just grabbed me and I had to see how it ended. (laughs) (laughs) Then me and Andy watched it. And then I watched it together. (laughs) Oh my (laughs) gosh. And then I watched it with Jail the next day. I didn't know you did that. That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So now let's get into some spoilers uh, for Tiger King. So at this point, if you're listening and you have not watched the Netflix series Tiger King, please go watch it. I'm urging you. This conversation is not going to be nearly as fun if you don't know half the crazy stuff that happened in the show. Just like sit down six hours, come back to this. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the way that we have pre-organized this discussion is that we are going to talk about the three main character focal points of the show. Uh, those three characters being Joe Exotic, Carol Baskin, and Doc Bhagavan Kevin Ansel. <laughs> um, there are oh, there's a whole cast of insane, zany side characters that could basically have their own spinoff shows. But uh, these are the three main uh, t- private zoo owners that the documentary focuses on. Uh, so we thought it would be kind of fun to dissect what each character is about and all of the crazy shit to unpack about the character uh, in in this. Yeah, in, here. <laughs> that was bad. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> so who wants to start with Joe Exotic? Well, I guess I'll just kind of kick us off and you guys can jump in whenever. But with a show like this and with the amount of just crazy personalities that are in it it's wild that you can say that there is one person who stands out among them 
<laughs> and that's and that's Joe Exotic. Amen. Like he, he each of them has each of these main three people that we're going to talk about has a lot of bizarre stuff going on with their personalities and their actions. But Joe encompasses all of that. He has the looks. He has the mullet. He has the <laughs> the crazy facial hair, the very flamboyant clothing. In he, the first episode, it, he introduces himself as the world's only big cat Onan gun-toting gay libertarian or yes something. that is the perfect way to describe him if that doesn't like get you immediately hooked like like wake yourself up man you don't have a pulse like oh and, my god and i mean i can't lie he is a natural entertainer like you can see why he was successful or sort of successful in what he did. Like he has this personality that makes you want to know more about him. And that's why this Netflix special was also so successful was because of him without, without Joe exotic, this wouldn't be nearly as popular. Like it just, it just wouldn't. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I 100% agree. Um, the guy is larger than life in every imaginable way. Um, I, I think it's interesting um, how they all started, or I guess let's just let's just talk about Joe's progression a little bit. So I don't remember specifically how he got into wild animal collecting, but he bas- basically he said it was some sort of therapy, right? Mm-hmm. He had like he had a really bad injury, and then he started hanging out with tiger cubs. I, I don't know how that happened, but. And then, so basically, he ends up owning this massive zoo in Winniewood, Oklahoma, right? Yeah. Which everyone on the show describes as like <laughs> the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma. There's just this this colossal zoo with exclusively animals that you would see in like Africa, right? Like, right. like snow leopards and tigers and big snakes and crocodiles and all this like crazy stuff in the middle of Oklahoma. And they're all owned by this guy who's just, he's, he's a narcissistic nut job who's like putting up massive billboards of himself covered in tiger cubs and like yeah. gold chains and shit. Like, <laughs> well, like yeah, we'll, we'll probably talk about this more, but this show isn't about the tigers. It's about the personalities. And Joe Exotic exemplifies that more than anyone else. He markets himself so much. Like there's one scene in one of the first episodes where he talks about (laughs) all of the products that are in his, um, like store at the zoo. (laughs) And it's like, there's like condoms. There's like all sorts of things. The under, he literally brags that the underwear is the best seller. And he's like, Oh, people love the animal print. Like, Oh, and then just an added, Added on to that, the beautiful part of that scene is where the guy who's doing the documentary asks him, like, oh, do you use the underwear? And Joe's like, no, I don't wear any. Yeah, Yeah, this man free balls in jeans and works as, like, an entertaining, like, moving around all the place animal person all day. Like, kudos, man. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But I guess we can... uh, Another thing that we can talk about a little bit is um, we'll go into this with Carol, too. But something I just remembered about Joe's background is, is he has gone through some trauma um, with him. I remember him mentioning that he came out as gay to his parents and his grandfather or no, his father, I yeah, think, said, I, yeah. I never want to ha- see you. I don't come to my funeral. Like yeah. I just and I mean, 
it, it sounds like he did go through some traumatic experiences uh, based off of that when he was young. And you do have to wonder, like, did that contribute to where he ended up and what he ended up doing? Like, I can't totally. imagine that it didn't play a small part in that. No, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, he he's a very psychologically broken individual. And I think that like abandonment um, mm-hmm. probably manifests itself in the way that he has these relationships. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. He convinces um, straight men uh, to marry him. Well, yeah. he okay. So the I'd one guy, <laughs> yeah, he yeah. the the one yeah. John guy is not his husband. They're just partners for thirteen years. Um, but then he, he convinces this straight guy, Travis, to like get married to him under the pretense of basically supplying him meth. Yeah. It's, it's very strongly implied and basically obvious that he, at least with Travis, um, he gets them, he gets them hooked on drugs, specifically meth. And I, I think this is interesting. Like each of these people that we're going to talk about, they each, prey on different types of people and joe specifically in his relationships he is kind of grooming these young straight men i guess um i I don't know their sexualities exactly but uh, later in the show both uh john and john and travis are revealed to not be gay and so (laughs) that's interesting but another thing is that joe focuses on on people that are in a very, very vulnerable part of their life. Like he, all of the people working at his zoo are like all misfits, right? They're They're like like, ex convicts and people who are down on their luck, don't have any money. Um, and I just think that's an interesting part of his zoo is the community has there. So I feel like they play that off in the beginning. It's like, Oh, like this is my like kind of band of misfits, all like ex convicts bringing in like all these outcasts. But then, yeah, then we go into all his relationships and how he's grooming all these men. And, and it's uh, not very positive. Yeah. And, <laughs> it's like, and, uh, everyone's and also, got the front. Everyone's got a front. Each of right. these characters. And, and this, this applies to every other character as well. I mean, the other people as well, the zoo owners. But none of them are paying these people very much like yeah. <laughs> like it's t- and they're, working, screw that. they're working like what 16 hour days and like some people are like yeah yeah i work on christmas yeah i work i work i don't take holidays like what what now i forget whose zoo this was on but there was a woman who said i work eight to midnight or something and i don't get any days off and I believe the number she said was that she gets paid a hundred dollars a week, hundred and fifty a week, a hundred fifty a week. Yeah, that was for um, <laughs> Carol Baskin. Yeah. I mean, how can we not talk about Joe's? Oh yeah, voice. Perfect as segue. Well? I mean, we're going to talk about the murder scheme in a second. Joe has one of the. F- I mean, I don't want to say his voice is funny, but he has one of the most recognizable and. It just fits the look. Like if he it sounded is. normal, it wouldn't be right. But his voice, oh man, it's incredible. Which I, I think, <laughs> I think that perfectly transitions into something that me and you almost forgot about while while talking about this show earlier is his music career. Oh my god! <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, and, at first, 
So the way they introduce this, I love this. I love this. I, I have to talk about this. The way they introduce this is they like they do a scene with with Joe where he says something about like I don't know like missing someone or being like a misfit cowboy or something, and then this music starts playing, and you're like, oh, they're just doing country music like to fit the fact that he's a cowboy from Winniewood, Oklahoma, and then it like the camera turns and it's Joe singing like about being like a misfit cowboy or something like yeah. this man put his life into music as well, which is, Oh God. Oh, amazing. And, uh, when we get into the Carol Baskin saga, there's a specific <laughs> musical moment that we need to talk about, <laughs> but I don't know. Okay. I don't know if you guys know this. I think I might've mentioned it, but from what I could tell from the very brief research I did, that is not him singing, which is not surprising. There's it's, no not, it's not him. I, I I actually have Google pulled up right now. And it's like Huff, a rich baritone. There's like no yeah. way his nasally. <laughs> yeah. HuffPost Huff Post says musician Vince Johnson and vocalist Danny Clifton are actually behind the songs in the music videos. Uh, <laughs> which which doesn't surprise me at all because like you said, it's like this rich, like deep voice, which is not him. That is not Joe. So <laughs> no. okay. You did mention, yeah, I think it's time that we get into the Carol Baskin saga so that we can also end up talking about, you know, Carol, but <laughs> yeah. because this is the meat and potatoes of the show, let's say. Yeah. It's like right? the whole rivalry is pretty much the whole show <laughs> between <laughs> Joe and Carol Baskin. <laughs> <laughs> so Carol Baskin is a, what's the name of her freaking uh um oh my god it's um it's, it's a sanctuary of some kind i don't know the name's not important it doesn't big matter. cat sanctuary or something big cat rescue. Something in tampa florida big cat rescue yeah. big cat rescue yeah. there we go yeah, yeah. we're not going to edit that it doesn't matter it doesn't matter you know. <laughs> we're rolling with it so carol baskin is effectively the same person as joe in terms of what she's doing to cats in my opinion from my understanding of things they are all putting these exotic cats in places they shouldn't be in cages and you know the only thing carol isn't doing is buying and selling animals which is (laughs) apparently where she takes beef with joe i don't know seems pretty pretty gray area to me but um, in my so, opinion, they're all they're all pretty much the same in regards to how they treat the tigers, which is not well. Um, the only difference is how they frame themselves, because yeah. Joe Joe is very at least in the beginning he's very anti PETA, anti environmentalist. Uh, the only people he hates almost as much as Carol Baskin is PETA <laughs> at the beginning of the show. The, the animal rights people. The animal rights people. And then, <laughs> and then um, Carol frames herself as the savior of the tigers and that she yeah. that it's a sanctuary. But like you said, whenever I see her sanctuary in the show, it really doesn't look that nice for the tigers. Um, they're in pretty small spaces and they're in cages as far as I can see. I think the difference is she's not selling and breeding, but like what an impossibly vague line to like draw. Right. Yeah. Are we just moving the goalposts like whenever we want to like what's <laughs> acceptable? Like she I, does that. She's yeah. like that, dude. She's nuts. Because she used to she used to sell and breed, right? Or maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, they say that. Yeah. Because yeah. wasn't that when she was 
kind of picked up by that weird like 40 year old dude on the side With, of the road well yeah that's don, don lewis good we old are don, getting who we are, get yeah. good old don lewis rest in peace <laughs> we, we are getting ahead of ourselves here yeah, yeah. Yeah. for a second oh, anyway yeah. uh Dumb. yeah so basically the plot of the show the plot of the show is following this um murder for hire plot that develops around joe exotic to have carol baskin killed because joe views carol baskin as this imminent threat to his owning of tigers his zoo his livelihood and basically um joe being an insane narcissist wants to be the loudest voice in the room and he's not and basically he doesn't know when to stop he doesn't really have a a filter either he's always talking always recording and it ends up winding him down this crazy path that involves potential self-arson, um, defaming Carol Baskin on his, uh, his television channel, uh, and then eventually hiring a person to have Carol Baskin murdered. And then yeah, he winds and, up in FBI um, custody. <laughs> I, this is kind of random, but I think one of the most um, – one of the things that makes this – documentary amazing is that joe documented every single second of his life and that's part of what made this so good is that there were so many behind the scenes moments of his life that i think most documentaries would not get and yeah this this rivalry between them like for any anime fans out there i haven't seen an intellectual battle like this <laughs> since light yagami and l yeah no but like um it's it's incredible like um i guess maybe we should start talking about their rivalry now yeah uh, yeah it's it's basically um well originally the rivalry between them is about their difference in philosophy in that, like we said, Joe is apparently according you know, to Carol much different than her and he's mistreating these animals and she is saving them. But the rivalry becomes something very different. Um, and it doesn't really focus on the tigers anymore very much later on. And it starts focusing on a story about Carol Baskin that you've probably seen in social media already. And I don't know if you want to introduce that, Tyler, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. I'll talk about it uh, yeah. because Carol Baskin killed her husband. <laughs> Don, <laughs> Don Lewis. Sure. Uh, I believe she did. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, like, recount the Wikipedia page of this whole thing. But basically, Don Lewis is this multimillionaire from Florida. Uh, He had a family before he met Carol. And then one night, he was just driving around Tampa streets and saw Carol walking down the side of the road and then basically uh, picked her up. And then they got married. Which is just, like, super suspect in general. Like, (laughs) I don't know if there was anything left out about that story, but that just is really bizarre. Like... So much to unpack. On Reddit, that that specific street or whatever was just supposed to be for hookers or something. Yeah, I mean, like, it's... I mean, it's... Some people are saying that she may have been a prostitute, which I don't think is completely out of the realm of possibility. Right. Considering that story. Wow. Didn't even... Wow, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that was not on my radar, but wow, yeah. holy shit. So, so <laughs> Don Lewis uh, and Carol get married. Don Lewis is a multimillionaire. Carol comes from nothing. 
Carol has been obsessed with cats her whole life. There's like baby mm-hmm. pictures of her with cats in the crib, whatever. They get into buying exotic animals and they get like 50 tigers and a monkey and like all this, all this crazy stuff. Like they have a bunch of animals. Um, yeah, they start off with like a million like lynx, like lynx cats. Yeah. Like this. <laughs> There's that picture with the porch and their porch is like covered in lynx. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. For some reason, that's what they started with. So the the story goes that things were getting bad um, towards the towards the 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 point where Carol was getting really obsessed with her big cat rescue situation, and Don wanted out, and he was going to go to um, oh somewhere in South Costa America. Rica. Costa Rica. Thank you very much. So he's going to go to Costa Rica, and he has this flight planned. Um, allegedly to get up early, 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 they specify that <laughs> to go to Costa Rica. And he never went to Costa Rica. He never logged a flight. And he I think it seemed missing. I think it's also worth mentioning, like we don't know much about Don and his wealth at all. We don't just really, say he has multi-millions. Yeah. And, and there's like all these different accounts from people and their numbers on how much money he has, even from his lawyer, are all over the place. Yeah. Like somebody says like, oh, Don, you know, he probably has about $5 million. Another one of them says, uh, I think he has around $20 million. And we don't really, I, I mean, this is just me, but I think he was doing something outside of the tiger business as well that was illegal. I'm not sure. Probably. But like, it, we don't really know a whole lot about his Costa Rica trip either, but it's just bizarre. Don's, yeah. a, Don's a very mysterious figure. And now we'll never know. Yeah. Um, so basically, um, Don goes missing. Um, the will, Don's will is unable to be found. And the one that they do find has been altered to say that Carol gets all the money. Um, yep. Five years and one day, everything. five years and one day after Carol or after Don disappears, Carol has him declared dead in the state of Florida and inherits all of Don's money. And there's like, one really so sauce. <laughs> Yeah, and there's one really suspicious scene. And of course, like I will say, the the documentary does interview people who are clearly um biased against Carol. Like I'll give her that. Like it's it's clearly framed against her. But there's one there's one story where she like I, I don't know the specifics, but she basically broke in to the area where the lady who was supposed to be the executor of Don's estate had all of her documents. Yep. And Carol literally broke in, I think, and somebody. 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 And it that I mean, if that was Carol, that that's pretty damning. But we don't <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So basically the story goes the evidence never came together. Now Carol has all the money and is running Big Cat Sanctuary. Um so Joe takes this idea and you know goes crazy with it and makes a music video. Um <laughs> this video, this video <laughs> with I, a I, with a, a very convincing It's double. incredible. I, I I seriously thought that was her. I literally thought <laughs> I was, I was like it. I was like, wow, where did he find this woman? Like, it looks exactly <laughs> like Carol. <laughs> like, I, I was like, why did she agree to this video? And <laughs> it was a double. <laughs> I, I, and it's funny because, like, when I first watched it, I didn't know exactly what was going on. And then I see that they're feeding this, like, 
head and like <laughs> fake fake body parts to the tigers <laughs> through and oh my goodness and in and, and the carol double is even wearing the oh clothes that carol wears yeah. and like the flower crown type stuff that carol wears she's like the way that she dresses is like the perfect cross between like some like boho hippie like right. coachella going person and then like the ultimate crazy cat lady she yeah. looks ridiculous yeah and I, whenever carol is i don't know what you guys think about this but whenever carol is questioned about don don's disappearance or anything related to that so disingenuous just, just her, her, her her tone is just so weird and it's just seem it comes off as very fake and it's like for example they'll ask her about like these claims that she killed don and she'll just be like oh that's ridiculous like i don't know how she says it but it just sounds wrong it just sounds wrong (laughs) what she was saying like early 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 like that's what he said like that just sounds like such a line you would (laughs) be for the cops yeah (laughs) that's my alibi like he just said early 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 (laughs) (laughs) and like I would I assume she did it. Okay. Like I'm going to assume she did it. But I will say, like I said earlier, that there is this small possibility that I think Don was involved, or maybe they were both involved, some in some other illegal activities. If I had to guess, I would say they were. I don't know where all all of Don's wealth came from, and I'm gonna say it wasn't legal. And I think there is a small sliver of a chance that somebody else offed him and that carol's innocent i doubt it i highly doubt it i think she's not but i think if something else happened that would be it yeah i heavily agree yeah with that i mean yeah she she doesn't um going back to the thing that you said about her answering questions um in a in a roundabout or like i would say it's very political and also like a lawyer a lawyer really advised her um, yeah. on exactly what <laughs> to say, how to say it, to make sure her story was consistent and believable. It's very um, scripted. Uh, and in that sense, she reminds me a lot of our third character, <laughs> Doc Antle, who... <laughs> My boy. <laughs> whatever, whatever the Indian version of Weeb is, that's what he is. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Doc Doc is a very, in my opinion, a very close second to the most interesting part as the most interesting person in this show behind Joe Exotic. Like he's he the is most bizarre. scary. He's the like, scariest. Yeah, I, I, I wrote that down in my notes. I'm like, this is the dude I'm actually the most afraid of out of it, all the people on the show. My opinion of him never changed throughout the show. It was always negative, and I was always really off put by I was <laughs> by him. <laughs> So yeah, so this this doc, uh, he okay. So his name is Kevin. His real birth name is Kevin Antle. He has christened himself Bhagavan Antle, um, and he he goes by Doc. I I guess I don't know. He's not a real doctor. There's no way. Um, and he owns a he owns a similar private zoo to to Joe's in Myrtle Beach. And it's very um, big, I think, as well. It's huge, yeah, yeah. It's huge. It's huge. And he has all types of animals. And I think <laughs> you can't talk about uh, Doc <laughs> without talking about 
the women that work at his zoo and how he preys on them. Um, all of the women that work at his zoo, you learn, joined joined his zoo when they were minors, or at the very least, very young, probably barely over eighteen. If they were above eighteen, none of them are over twenty. I, yeah, I, Se- I doubt, seventeen yeah. to nineteen. Seventeen yeah. to nineteen, and a lot of them have been there a very long time, and it's. I think one of the most interesting parts of this show is when they interview a woman who used to work there and she's clearly very much traumatized by the whole experience. And I don't blame her at all. Uh, It's he's very predatory um, with these women. And this, this lady that used to work there says that, she was pressured to have sex with him to move up in the in the ranks of of the zoo and they also sorry if i'm rambling but they also forcibly made her get breast implants yes which is horrible dude that's oh yeah it's so oh it's so awful yeah and like that was the section of the 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 whole this whole thing right jaw on the floor Mm. moments like i'm like disgusted and appalled at everything these people have done but the fact that this guy brings these, you know, very young, impressionable women in, um, it's well known that he's sleeping with all of them. He's like married to like four of them, right? Yeah. Like that's like said, he's like in a four way <laughs> polyamorous relationship. With all said, of them. These Mormons kind of snapped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> More, a Mormon yeah. Indian guy. No, there's like, there's like there's like some random guy who's interviewed. I forget where he worked, but he definitely had some sort of connection with Doc Antle. And he talks about how he's like, oh, I didn't even want to learn about the tigers. I wanted to learn how he, you know, tamed these women, which is really fucked up in yeah. oh, so, so, It's So gross. Yes, no, which is really so gross. Disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he brings these women in and he has them change their names to be like a part of his like spiritual like guidance you know welcome to the family Mm -hmm. type of thing yeah and um you trying to tell me that's not a cult (laughs) that's a cult straight up more than any i think they all have their own like little version of a cult but he fits the mold of exactly what you would think of a typical cult leader more than anyone else. He has the different name. He has the weird kind of like spiritual aspect. Bhagavan apparently means Lord, which is just yeah, absurd. Like, like He's calling himself this. God. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I fan casted him. Like I fan casted the whole show and I was watching him like, yeah, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman would make a great he Doc Ansel in the biopic. Oh, R.I.P. <laughs> he would. I, I know. know. He, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just absurd. He scares me. He, I, I went, when I was telling you guys about the show um, a while ago, I was saying he just gives me like Charles Manson vibes. Yeah. yeah. Like it's disturbing. Like it's in, there's actually weird, like striking similarities between the two. Like they're kind of like outdoorsy. They both, prey on young women there's like this weird spiritual worship the family it's actually weird how many parallels there are between them yeah he's one helter skelter away from literally leading a leading a a murder cult like yeah it's insane um yeah he he's the most disturbing character in my opinion um by far and that's with saying that carol might have murdered her husband I think Doc still outdoes her. <laughs> yeah. 
absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and and I, so I'm going, I'm like backtracking super quick, but go ahead. Carol, like my version, like in, in my opinion, like Carol has a very strange like version of a cult. It's like, it's just a bunch of like volunteers and they all have this weird like t-shirt system of like rank, ranking up. <laughs> And I don't think any of them are getting paid at all, except maybe the very high up people. But it's just this weird, like, merit, like, ranking up system. Well, not even merit. You have to be there for years. Earn your Johns, dude. You don't get paid. You you just get a different T-shirt. Carol has a Johns cult. But yeah, I just, (laughs) I just, I just. And they're all weak. They're weak Johns. Yeah, they're weak Johns. But yeah, you have to work there for like four years or something to get like a blue shirt. And I don't even know what that even means. Um, But yeah, I just wanted to to mention that. No, it's totally worth mentioning. Yeah. Um, I think uh, in the interest of time here, uh, not that this discussion hasn't been great, but in the interest of time, uh, we should probably uh, make some closing remarks uh, on uh, on Tiger King and then uh, transition into the uh, the next part of the pod. Nice. Um, uh, yeah, sure. I'll go first. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, uh, very entertaining documentary. I recommend it if you just want to see some weird stuff while you're in quarantine. Um, I, I don't. I don't think if if I had to make a closing statement, none of these people are good people. Um, some of them try to frame themselves as good people. I mean, most of them actually do try to do that, but none of them are good. None of them care about the tigers it's actually it's actually really sad and joe comes to that conclusion at the end he even says like i maybe started off caring about the animals but you know in the end it wasn't about that and i I don't think it's about that for any of them and i'm not someone who knows like a whole lot about like environmental issues um i mean i do care about them but one of the things that struck me about at the end of the show was the stat where they showed that there's more way more tigers in the u.s than there are in the wild and that was actually like really sad to me and um yeah it it just it's a show about people who uh maybe they did care about the tigers at first but they clearly lost their way and it all became about them and their personalities and their cult following and uh it's a crazy show. I guess you could even call it like sort of a character study <laughs> on some of the strangest people in the U.S. That's exactly literally I, I was going to say. If you want a character study on people who are not clinically insane, but as close to it as you can be, like right, just completely debased from reality and and, you know, narcissistic, uh, megalomaniacal, like if, if you want a character study on what being obsessed with something and yourself to the point of insanity uh, can do. This is, this is the show and yeah. I would absolutely recommend it to <laughs> anybody. Yeah. And then on the less serious note, if you're just looking for something that's just for the shock factor of yeah. what the, <laughs> first of all, Seriously. my only things that I didn't mention yet are like, Joe's dick piercing. Oh my god! How did we not mention that? Yeah, we went really serious with this. Carol's Carol's second husband being absolutely the king of simp's. This is like the only time I'm going to use this seriously. Biggest simp in the world. It's it's accurate. Like the picture of her with him on a chain. Yes, he's literally (laughs) 
yeah. like he's a submissive simp. He's like, like he is. Like I don't do anything for Carolyn and Audrey. And then and then uh, Tyler Tyler sent us a snap of this like <laughs> recently. But he he really tries to steal the show at the end with his singing performance, which is just <laughs> horrible. <laughs> this crazy opera. If I ever left you, like oh my god, what, bro? bro what are you yeah. doing? Yeah, Howie, Howie Baskin, you know. You and, know and, and the and, thing with uh with Joe's dick piercing, <laughs> I don't, I literally don't know how else to say oh this. But God. me, I, the, the only the Prince Albert is what it's called. The Prince Albert. I I, I didn't realize this until my second viewing with JL. Like I didn't, I didn't recognize it the first time I watched, and then we were like, "Wait, hold up!" We, we like we and we looked up we what it was. Back like three times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But anyways, yeah, this show's insane. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. I uh, I highly recommend it. I uh, I don't. I recommend know how it to, too. Like, give it a rating, but like I haven't because I haven't reviewed it on Letterboxd. I finished it like 15 minutes before we started recording. Yeah. I would I probably s- like honestly, like unironically, like a like a three and a half or four star. Yeah, same. Like it's, it's very solid, very entertaining. It's yeah. solid. Pretty I mean, it's entertaining. It. Yeah, I saw JL gave it a four, and I was like, yeah, you know, I'll give it that too. Yeah, that I, it's out. entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so now let's talk about something that we all unanimously gave fives. Oh uh, my goodness! On His fingers masterpiece. So <laughs> good. I needed and, uh, this. Before we get started talking about this, I love that on Letterboxd, it changes the stars to flames for this. Yes, masterpiece. So so good. So good. Such a a nice touch. So we are talking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, a movie from 2019 directed by Celine Siama, starring Noemi Merlant, Adele Enel. Luana Bajrami, Valeria Galino, with cinematography by Claire Mathon. Now, I apologize to any of those wonderful women whose names I butchered <laughs> because they are all French. And you I did pretty well, gotta, I think. Yeah. You gotta oh, float a little bit. You gotta be like, Mathon. Bonjour. I don't claim to know French. I'm not French. I, uh, yeah, I. I don't remember, I don't think I've ever even taken a French class to be honest. So yeah, um, um, and despite watching a lot of French cinema, I still have no uh, no sense of the language. But anyway, I'm gonna give a quick summary of of what this wonderful film is about, and it's a very short one because if we if we reveal too much about it, uh, you know, uh, just watch the movie. Set in France in the late 18th century, the film tells the story of a forbidden affair between an aristocrat and a painter commissioned to paint her portrait. So, before we uh, get into talking about the meat and potatoes here, we all love this movie. I'm just going to say something real quick. Yeah, obviously I loved it too. But this is one of those rare circumstances where I watched this movie before either of you. <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't yeah. that doesn't that doesn't happen often like i'm one of those people that i either watch it right when it comes out or i watch it like two months later and so i watched i watched this and i realized i was pretty early on it 
And as I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, this is a masterpiece. And I need to tell Tyler and JL about this. <laughs> and I was like immediately texting you about it. Um, I, I finished it in like, I split it up between two days, but I was, I was in awe at this, at this thing. And uh, we all ended up watching it within like a two day period. <laughs> yeah. So, JL, what'd you think? Um, just absolutely an entrancing movie that like it's on Hulu, so you can just go watch it right now if you're listening, mm. and then come back in two hours. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it, it's just beauty, but it's that's what it is. So, yeah, this thing was on my radar. This thing that's so rude of to me to call this. this I know. I don't thing. know why I said that either. I feel bad this, now. This no, John it, right here. This John. <laughs> this this joint. This, this I, joint. I felt like Anthony Fantano when I said this thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> shout out. Shout out to Antoine. The yeah. Antoine. Um, so yeah, this, this wonderful uh, work of cinema, this work of art, it's been on my um, radar since Cannes um, last year. Uh, you know, a lot of people came away from Cannes praising Parasite, which won the Palme d'Or. Um, they were praising, uh, I don't even, I mean, it was really all about Parasite. It was all about the Parasite hype is what I really remember. And rightfully so. Masterpiece to Parasite. Director Bong is the man. He's currently in my background on Zoom. Um, <laughs> um, but I was really, I was really fascinated by this because all of the reviews um, that were coming out of Letterboxd were calling this like super entrancing and this beautiful work of art. And uh, I was just really thinking a lot about French New Wave cinema being like the same thing. And I love French New Wave cinema. So this has been on my radar for a long time. I had tickets to see it in theaters on the Monday tragedy after Cornell and all of Ithaca shut everything down for COVID-19. So thank God for Hulu. Thank God right. we live in an era where streaming services exist so that we all have the opportunity to see this. And, you know, people in the audience, you do too. Like JL said, go watch this. We're going to spoil it from you here on to. out. It's so good. <laughs> you have to. If you're listening to this pod, you have to. Requirements. <laughs> yeah. Just turn off the pod right now. Go watch it. And, and <laughs> I, and I, I will say, like, it's an easy watch, in my opinion. Like it went yeah. by fast and I enjoyed it so much. Like it, it, it was for like a, you know, like a hoity toity French art film, yeah. super approachable, something mm -hmm. to love for everybody, but that doesn't devalue it. Right. No. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So here on out spoilers to follow for portrait of a lady on fire. Okay. Sorry, just writing down the timestamp. No, it's all good. <laughs> Let's start with the most striking element of the film, which is the incredibly artistic presentation oh my of the film. Um, uh, <laughs> the film looks like a painting. Every frame of this movie is gorgeous. The colors are unparalleled. It's amazing. The blues of the ocean, the greens of the dresses. Um, uh, um, Marianne, wow. Marianne is always wearing this like vibrant brown dress and it's so iconic. It's like the color is like burned into my memory. I know that's so cliche to say, but it is like, I will never true. forget <laughs> the way this movie looks. I, 
I don't know. I can't even think of the last time that I saw a movie this beautiful. Like, <laughs> I I started watching this, and from the moment that they show Marianne posing for her students, and it's, like, perfectly framed like a portrait, it's just amazing. Like, everything in this movie is beautiful. The environment I mean, let's be honest, the people are beautiful. The women yeah. in this movie are beautiful. I could not stop staring yeah. at the, at the yeah. leaves. <laughs> it, just everything. The the people, the environment, the dialogue. We'll talk about that too, but everything is beautiful. It's yeah. incredible. I, with, the, with the framing like a painting, I love the visual symmetry that's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Um, they, um, Celine Siama plays a lot with the way that, you know, the human form um, from the side is very asymmetric, right? Like we have long legs and long arms and she plays a lot with arms and like the way that the human body is silhouetted against these really symmetric backgrounds. Um, you know, the one that sticks out in my mind is when, um, uh, Marianne first arrives at the manor and she takes off her wet dress that she (laughs) got wet from saving her art supplies, which I think I love that by the way, like that's so, like she's so dedicated to making this painting at first and then that goes away. But anyway, she's, she's, so she's drying herself off in front of the fire and it's this like perfectly symmetric white room, wooden floors. And she's just silhouetted against this, like this billowing fire. And I was just like, wow. Okay. Well, that's the most so, beautiful thing I've ever yeah, seen. It's, it's We're in for the film now. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so quick quick aside, like for the listeners out there, however many we, we may have for this first hey, episode. All, all 13 million. <laughs> all, thir- all 13, 13 of you, there's, there's 13 million. <laughs> there, there's some background info I have to give you about one of the podcasters here. JL is by far the most artistic of us, and it's not even close. Like in a landslide, this man is by far the most most artistically creative in, yeah. many, in many different ways. And so, I mean, I guess I want to ask you both this, but like specifically, JL, I want to know, like, when did you first think like, wow, this movie is like incredibly beautiful, like in an artistic sense or like what um, kind of like, well, I don't know, like what kind of. Take uh, the brain of an artist. Yeah. Dude, literally just from the, that credit sequence, like, uh, I guess, cause I also do video editing as well. Mm-hmm. And like, just seeing like it's just like white and you see the hand and then the just the very like striking blue right there as it from their sketches i'm like oh i'm in for it now (laughs) (laughs) i am in for it now (laughs) but um yeah and like i guess what we talked about too how how all the uh the colors um they just feel like like a french painting like a like old french painting and I, I'm just thinking the whole time, like, I don't know, like the color grading. I don't know how the hell they did all of this and got it to look this way. Or if it, if it was just like the natural setting of where was this even in France somewhere? I think. Yeah, but <laughs> oh, my God. Um, it was oh, filmed yeah, I, in the St. Pierre Querébon. It's in it's in a chateau in somewhere in France, in Brittany, France, which if it looks like this in real life, uh, as soon as COVID's over, I'm buying we're, a plane ticket. Yeah, we're going. I feel like I'm just going to keep talking about like random scenes that I thought were beautiful. But like, like when she's on that boat and she's pulling mm. up to the to the island, oh my god, it's a, it's beautiful. Did like, you guys like how how the wave was obscuring the the shoreline? 
and then it rocked like as the boat was rocking right. you so could cool. see more and more of the, the shoreline as they were approaching i was like how you do that <laughs> <laughs> you know because with, with, with my filmmaking background like i'm always like making short films and it's always static stuff and i'm like to rock a camera like that and make it look so good yeah. amazing yeah yeah i'll keep going on about um Oh, about how arts. they portrayed art and like, um, you know, working with visual medium. Yeah, I think, I mean, the biggest thing, cause we have on here, we talk about like how that, that quote about, um, that Eloise said to, uh, to Marianne where, she, you know, when she's like painting, she sees the first portrait and says like the fact that it isn't close to me that I can understand, but I find it sad. It isn't close to you. And like that, <laughs> as, like, right. as someone who like was brought up on art, um, I was like, damn <laughs> um i mean something because you have all the uh this even applies to design because i'm a designer now and like i still have to adapt and stuff and you know you have to really stick to the fundamentals but when you're doing art um really letting your style shine through is i think like what hmm. will define you as a as an artist Cause people don't go you don't go to a museum and be like oh it's like i just want to like look at art you know sometimes you'll be like oh let's there's a van gogh over there there's monet over here there's like this whole row of rembrandt and all this other stuff i'm really sad i can't even name a uh, female artist right now this is this Wrong is spot. this is really embarrassing but <laughs> but like yeah like that style um and i guess that just really really hit me as an artist that quote and, and like um you you were texting me about the movie while you were watching it yeah. and there was one thing that really david stood out lynch to me. david lynch would be ashamed yeah. <laughs> Stay but, off your phone. <laughs> but, but, there, yeah. but there was one thing that you said that I thought was really cool. And I'll let you talk about it. But you were talking about how the director kind of read your mind at one yeah, point. Um, that was, I don't, I don't know how they, they framed it that way. But like, basically, when, um, when they were doing the, the first portrait, and then she was kind of studying uh, Eloise's features. Um, they, she came back at night, right, to look at all those sketches. And then I, me as a viewer, I'm also like, in the place of Marianne kind of looking at her face, trying to figure out those details. And the thing that I noticed was the lips, like her like lower half and the lips at first. And then when she's looking at the sketches and she's like kind of sifting through them in my mind, I'm like, she's going to pick the lips. It's got to be the one with the lips. And she picks it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Yo, like, they just read my mind. And then they go right next to the scene where uh, now she has to focus on the eyes and the upper half. And like, I don't think that's really a, um, like a convention or anything when you're when drawing sketches, but I just thought that was so cool and how like, like it just read my mind. It's <laughs> like that's exactly what I was thinking. And so I definitely yeah, you wonder I definitely wonder if um because they had an onset artist, mm -hmm. I wonder if that helped get more of a you know a because Celine Siama is obviously an artist. She yeah. wrote and directed this. This is art, but uh, having a visual artist and getting a visual artist perspective on making portraits, I wonder if having um, this this artist Helene Delmer on set really really helped um, with that. Uh, do you want to talk about it? Do you want to talk about what she did, Andy? I just love this quote about it from the Wikipedia page. It just blew my mind. So I'm just going to read it. It says, the paintings and sketches in the film were made by artist Hel Helene, Helen Delmer. Uh, she painted 16 hours every day during the course of filming, basing her painting on the blocking of the scenes. 
Her hands were also featured in the film. Um, and then to mark the release of the film, um, her portraits were exhibited at a gallery in France before the film, which is cool. But the fact that she had to spend 16 hours a day painting and she also had to block it, like in terms of where they were at in the film, like that, that has to be just absurd. Like the amount of talent that you have to have and like figure like, okay, this is where an artist would be three days into, into painting or, you know, like it, it it's awesome. I yeah. loved it. The, the attention to detail is just something to be endlessly praised about this movie. The paintings are immaculate. <laughs> They're so good. And like, you know, they, they show, um, Helen, Helene painting like, and knowing that it's her hands, like it's, it's just beautiful. Her brush strokes, they focus on like every detail. Uh, it's, it's, it's awesome. I'm so glad that they actually, it's such a, it's such a nice, like refreshing, um, inclusion in film when someone takes the time to get like their references, right. You know what I mean? Like they're not, it's not, this was clearly a thing of passion and Celine Siamo wanted the paintings to look amazing. She wanted there to be a progression with the paintings and doing this is so it's, in, it's intentional filmmaking. Um, it's purposeful filmmaking and yeah, I love it. I love that. And just real quick, like speaking of the beauty in this film, <clears throat> uh, JL touched on it for a second, but the, the scene where you first see Heloise's face is just, it's just stunning when she turns around and just the way it focuses on her. I mean, obviously she's beautiful. Yeah. Turns around. She turns around. Yeah. But uh, if you are still listening at this point and you haven't seen the movie, what are you doing? If, you, if, you, if you're still listening and you haven't seen the movie, turn around. But no, uh, that scene was beautiful. And then, like, I'd say probably like a, a very large percentage of this movie is painting scenes and they're never boring. They're right. never boring. They're because of the incredible dialogue. Yeah, I guess we can just move into that. I mean, I love yeah. talking about that. Yes, do it. Okay, so <laughs> I was just going to say the dialogue in this movie. I, I always love like good dialogue in movies. It's just something that I always like seem to focus on. And something that struck me about Portrait of a Lady on Fire is that it's not just about the things that are said. It's going to sound really cliche and corny, but a lot of it is about what's unsaid. And the expressions, like the facial expressions are just incredible. The acting in this movie blows my mind. The, a the actress that plays um, Heloise. Um, Adele Anel. Adele. So she's already won a bunch of awards and there is no surprise there. Her, her performance <laughs> is incredible. The things she's, like, she she's like just a touch over 30, right? Yeah. Yeah, like 31 maybe right yeah and marianne Master. is also amazing and the things that they communicate with just like their eyes and and their expressions like specifically the sexual tension is just crazy how good it is and the way that it just naturally progresses throughout the film it's so believable like the relationship and how it grows right. like it's so real and um, 
I guess I, so I'm going to talk about like one of my one of my favorite lines. And so so at the beginning of the movie, a lot of their sexual tension, I I mean that's the only way I can think of how to put it. It's exactly is, what it is. is is through is through nonverbal, you know? So they they're just like giving each other these longing looks like uh very quickly and and whatnot and a lot of it's just implied but um uh real quick background you know heloise isn't allowed out of the house by herself and there's a After, scene it's yeah i think it's worth noting that oh, yeah. Why, yeah why she's not allowed. <laughs> yeah. yeah we kind of glossed over the plot uh, the <laughs> of the plot heloise isn't allowed out of her house because her younger si- or her older sister committed suicide by jumping off the cliffs because she didn't want to be a part of an arranged marriage mm-hmm. now Eloise is in line to be married to the same person uh, because their mom wants to go on vacation in Milan, basically. And basically, they're sending the guy a portrait. They want to send the guy a portrait of Heloise. So so that he knows what she looks like. Um, The old Instagram. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Tinder Tinder 1795. I I literally thought the same thing. But anyway... Yeah. Anyway, I'm glad we got some background there. Thank you. <laughs> but um, yeah, because I was just rambling. But Heloise finally is allowed to leave the house for once. And she, I think she says she goes to church or something. I, yes. I, yeah. And she goes so, to mass. Yeah. She goes to mass and then she comes back. And well, this seems important for a couple of reasons. Marianne is trying to hide. She has paint on her hands and she's trying to hide it because at this point, Heloise doesn't know she's a painter. But anyways, um, Marianne is it successfully hides that she has paint on her hands and she turns away and she's walking away. And Heloise is talking to her. This is kind of the first time she's very talkative. And Marianne either asks her how like it went going by herself or whatnot. And Heloise says, um, let me just put, I want to get the exact quote. I'm just going to say it. Um, so Heloise says, in solitude, I felt the liberty you spoke of, you know, because they've been talking about that before. And then she says, but I also felt your absence. And it's just this moment. And it's just this moment. It's just, it's just this very hard hitting moment where you're just like, oh, damn. Like, it was just spoken for the first time. And you can see it on Marianne's face, too. She like, like, yeah, she freaks she's not, out. She's not, she's not worried about the paint on her hands. Like, that's not what she's reacting to. She's reacting to, to what uh, Heloise said. But anyways, I've been talking a really long time. So I just want to let you guys talk about yeah. some dialogue you like. JL, how about you go? Um, honestly, the one I wrote down was the one I already said, but... Let me think of another one. I guess you can go first while I think. Okay, yeah. Um, so I think one of the most important lines, or at least one of the, the coolest presented lines in the movie is, do all lovers feel like they're inventing something? Oh. And it's said in like this moment of like, like passion between these two women who are doing something taboo at the time in this super, you know, Christian, misogynist, mm-hmm. white women are subservient and let alone women loving women, right? Like yeah, this is this is lie. such a an ass backwards time. And the the um the genuine, you know, ingenuity that this line carries is really I think it's akin to um the movie, the voice of the movie and the spirit of the movie as well. Um I really I felt like this thing was there. There I go again, calling it this thing. I thought that this movie um, 
had a really fresh and like um, exciting and vibrant take on romance and specifically the forbidden romance. Forbidden romance has been around since Shakespeare, but I don't think it's ever been done quite like this. And I liked Celine Siama putting this line in here because it's almost kind of like, hey, you see what I'm doing? I'm doing something different. I loved it. It was awesome. It, it was maybe, um, I'd say maybe the most romant- romantic line, if I had to put it. I, it it's beautiful. It, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, uh, JL, did you think of uh, another one? Not really, but just thinking about that line itself, I mean. Turn around, right? Well, no, that one and then the, the I whole have another uh, banger. inventing inventing something line. I just like <laughs> thinking about thinking about girls right now, man. Dale's <laughs> <laughs> visibly shaking. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, that one that one hit home. I'm not gonna get too personal on the on the public podcast, but that one hit home. <laughs> no, but I, I think that's what I think like that's worth mentioning though. Like the, every line in this whole relationship felt real. And it felt natural and I could relate to it in a weird way. I mean, I guess I couldn't like on a, I, I'm not a lesbian woman, but it it felt, it felt genuine, you know, and it, it felt real. And and there's just another line that I, I have to mention, like I have to mention it. It, There's probably two actually, but so Heloise um finally finally it's revealed to heloise by marianne herself i have to give her props for you know stepping up and saying it herself that marianne is a painter and there's this scene where um where marianne marianne and heloise are critiquing the art for the first well heloise is critiquing that first painting and marianne's a little offended you know uh and she says well I didn't know you were an art critic, you know, which is, you know, a fair, like a little bit of a burn, you know, (laughs) but Heloise comes back and every line in this movie is a dagger. And she goes, well, I didn't know you were a painter. And it just, it just hits, it just hits hard. I, I I like, I was watching this alone and I literally like, damn, on my couch, like, 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 yeah. Like, I'm I, alone I think, in my room yeah, screaming cor- about this movie. Yeah, like, quarantine really had me talking to myself, but also because it's <laughs> such a beautiful movie. But that one in particular, like, man, it, it hit me hard, and you can tell it hit Marianne hard, too. <laughs> um, uh, one thing I, I think that we should talk about um, is the very obvious but still incredibly well-done inclusion of the myth of Orpheus. Oh, one of my favorites. Greek, one of my favorite parts of this whole movie. Greek mythical tale of Orpheus. Um, and that's, that's probably the quote that uh, I, I was forgetting about. And I texted Andy when they were telling the story and I'm like, yo, are they really going to foreshadow it like this, man? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, am I ready for this? <laughs> but uh, yeah, keep going, keep going. Um, okay, yeah. So it's this like, the gosh, I don't even know how, how into the story of it I should get. Basically, there's this, there's this maid character who's having an abortion and it's what brings uh, Marianne and Eloise closer after that initial um, scuffle over whether Marianne is, is you know, painting in truthfulness or not, whatever. So basically, they bond over helping this young girl who's also going to be a societal outcast if news gets out about what she's doing. Um, a, great, a great parallel uh, for the right. time, etc. Um, 
it, they bond over helping this this girl, and they're reading the myth of Orpheus to um, this young girl. And basically, um, there's this there's they reach the climax where Orpheus is climbing out of hell with the Eurydice. Eurydice. I don't know. I'm sorry, guys. Eurydice. Uh, Eurydice. Yeah, yeah. Eurydice. Eurydice. Oh, thank you. I only know that uh, because I watched a video on it, dude. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> like, how to pronounce Eurydice? Yeah. <laughs> Eurydice. Eurydice. Okay, so Orpheus and Eurydice are climbing out of hell. And basically, he turns. He, the deal is, if he turns back and looks at her, uh, he loses her forever. Mm-hmm. And he turns back, like basically at the precipice of getting out of hell. That was probably a really bad explanation of it. No, There's, I mean it's perfect. <laughs> yeah. People who, who know Greek mythology better will understand the nuances better. But anyway, basically, this ends up paralleling exactly what happens in the movie. But there's this incredible dialogue back and forth with the um, maid. I the guess. Maid. Yeah, yeah, she's she's a maid. Where. Basically, uh, she's like, he turned around. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? And the, the, basically the, the conclusion of it is he made the lover or he made the The poet's poet's choice, choice. not the lover's choice. And basically he was more enthralled or more enraptured with the idea, the memory, the memory of her, which is beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. And so what this ends up coming back as manifesting itself as at the and JL, if you want to. Uh, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> I, mean, I think I think that's from that point on. Um, that's pretty much the the whole like metaphor or whatever for their relationship now, because you know she's she's still betrothed to whatever this dude in Milan, and then they kind of end up reconciling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the beach, it's like oh, it's like I'm so sorry, and like oh, we'll just spend man. these last days. Um, your mother's coming back, but then. You know, when Marianne's going out of the house and then Eloise is in her wedding dress and she says, turn around. And then Marianne turns around and then that's when you know. It's like, well, that's it. That's over. And then going, you know, into the future, um, like back into the future now, uh, the ending scene where Marianne's at like, with the opera or like orchestra mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. And then she sees Eloise from across the, the whole theater. And then we just spend like a solid three, four minutes just looking at Eloise and all this whole range of emotions on her face. And like, we're, we as a viewer, we're hoping like, please right. just look at us. <laughs> right. But then like, you know, that the, like Eloise is basically what Orpheus should have done. Like right. Eloise chose, still chooses Marianne. She chooses, like she wants, she wants it. And even in that portrait when uh, Marianne said, Oh, I saw her two more times in the future. And then there's a portrait of so uh, good. It's so yeah, good. That's so right. beautiful. Eloise in the museum, and she's holding up page twenty eight, the page that uh, Marianne sketches on and like herself. You know, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know if we mentioned it, so I'm just going to mention it real quick. At the at the end of the Orpheus and Eurydice story, um, you know, the maid is questioning why he turned around. Why did he do that? And uh, um, Heloise ends the story. And the ending of this story is just beautiful in general. And <laughs> he gets to the top of the the mountain or whatever to leave hell or wherever he's at, the underworld. Hades, Hades yeah. And <laughs> um, the ending of the story goes something like this. It's like, um, maybe the maybe um, Eurydice is the one who called out to him and said, turn around, which is just beautiful because he doesn't know if Hades is actually going to send her back and they value the memory of each other. And it's just 
it's beautiful and um like we were talking about the foreshadowing and it's the foreshadowing of that coming back is so heavy-handed and so obvious but it doesn't matter because it's done beautifully <laughs> like uh, the way that it's done is you see this kind of um tyler can talk about this a little bit more because he had some really good points about it but like you see this sort of phantom a couple times of of heloise in a white dress and marianne turns around and suddenly she disappears and it's just like beautifully done and yeah the metaphor is heavy-handed and yeah it's it's majorly foreshadowed that this is going to come back but to me it didn't matter because it was beautiful and it was amazing how it was done but you had some good thoughts on that tyler yeah um so I think uh, the the general notion of, of re-inclusion in movies is um, it's a hard line to toe, right? Sometimes it's done incredibly like uh, in this movie and in The Lighthouse. Uh, the Lighthouse where he's raving about Promethean fires. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then the end of the movie is literally the myth of Prometheus. Oh, anyway, man. Sorry. Speaking of heavy-handed. Could, yeah. Yeah, could talk about, could talk, although it's not because it's, but it's not. Because, yeah. because it's like, and then there's like, there's examples like, I don't know, like probably every Adam Sandler movie that's not Uncut Gems and Punch Drunk Love like probably has some moment in the middle of it where the character's like, I'm going to have to make a choice, aren't I? Oh and then God, like, they have so to true. make a choice. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I think it's a lot better when, hold on, I'm going to take a drink. I think it's done. I think when it, when it evolves convincingly as part of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Marianne loves to read. Marianne brings like one book with her on this trip and it happens to be Orpheus and Eurydice. Okay. Coincidental, sure. Worked in well, yes. But it's not like some vision from beyond, like telling her what's going to happen. No, right yeah. So in that regard, it is it is subtle and, and well done. Yeah. Um, what I liked about the handling of the apparition or the spirit or whatever it is, it's it's basically just like the static image of of Eloise in a wedding dress that shows up, and I think. Um, at first, I was like, uh, did, uh, "Ghost movie? Did we just?" <laughs> yeah, I, I, will, I will say, I will say, like, I was saying, like, that the foreshadowing is really strong. Yeah, it is, but you don't expect it to be done like that. No, like, you don't, yeah. you don't expect like a vi- like a like a f- kind of a phantom figure to appear. Like, I was stunned when that happened. I don't know about you guys. It's but. chilling. It's extremely <laughs> chilling. And so, what I what I liked about the way that they handled it is that there are three times Marianne sees Eloise in her wedding dress. And the first two times are apparitions, like we just talked about. And then almost immediately after she sees the apparition, there's like a moment of intimacy between Eloise and Marianne, uh, basically contrasting the idea that she is eventually going to be sold off into this marriage, right? Um, The third time we see Eloise in a wedding dress is what I would consider like the uh, the climax of the movie plot wise oh, yeah. where Marianne is leaving because her painting is done. And now Eloise goes to get married. Um, Eloise comes down the stairs in her wedding dress. We don't see her walking down the stairs. We only follow, we follow Eloise's view of Marianne as mm-hmm. she walks out of the room. So cool. And it's incredible. And then we get turn around, turn around two frames, three frames, maybe of Eloise in her wedding dress posed exactly like she was as the apparition. (laughs) 
and then the door slams. The door slams. And we we move forward in history. What I really like about this, it's foreshadowed, it's heavy-handed, but it still plays by like the rule of threes, right? Funny things come in threes, sad things come in threes. Mm -hmm. In every myth ever, in every story told ever, it's sets of three. I mean, I'm sure you could find a biblical example. It's like, oh, 40. But, you know, things happen. <laughs> things happen three times. Goes to Christmas uh, past, present, future, right? Mm-hmm. We, we like threes in storytelling. And I think, again, the attention to detail, she sees the ghost three times, and then it's, it's final. It's done. That right. image is... And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, really, um, uh, I really love that. I, I loved it, too. And... I think something cool to maybe discuss is that the director's choice. I I was talking to you about this. I think a lot of directors would have ended it right there Uh, after the, after the um, turnaround. It's a very dramatic ending. Um, I wouldn't even say that would be a bad ending, Um, but the director took a different path and you get those extra, extra scenes at the end with the art gallery and Marianne, oh my God, we, if there's another thing we have to talk about, <laughs> the art gallery scene. Um, with, that's another perfect example of re-inclusion. That's right. how you do re-inclusion that's right. How you, that's one I didn't see coming at all. Um, so I, I, maybe should I just go into that real quick? Go ahead. So um, at the end, after the turnaround scene, um, Marianne it talks about how she only saw um, Heloise, what, two more times? or one, Two more yeah, times. Two more times. And so she's... At the at this art gallery, um, and she's standing in front of a painting of Orf, Orf, Orpheus. And yeah, Eurythmia. it's funny because again, it comes back. Yeah, <laughs> she's standing in front in front of a painting of Orpheus in Eurydice, and this man who looks very French and very old with his wig on comes up to her, and <laughs> uh, and he and he talks to her, and um, um, her her father was a painter as well, and he says something like, "Oh, oh your wa- your, he's like, oh, your father's still in good form." And she says, "Well, um, well, this kind of goes with the whole sexism, misogyny stuff." She's like, um, "You know, I submitted it in his name, but I painted it." And he, the guy who's looking at it, goes on to say, "You know, this is an interesting painting because paintings of Orpheus and Eurydice usually have Orpheus either right before." she right before he turns around or right after when she's disappearing um but her painting has him kind of reaching out to her and her reaching out to him and they're they're saying goodbye and it's it's beautiful um it's incredible and there's another part right after that and i think one of you should talk about it yeah uh, talk, about page, talk about page the, uh, 28 page i mean you kind of you touched on it oh but, yeah, yeah i touched on it a little bit but um yeah, like that part after. Are you talking about the uh, the next the painting part? I'm, 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 next, oh, I'm talking about the next the painting. Next, after, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the actual portrait where yeah. she comes back and then sees because she says, "I see her two more times," mm-hmm. and then she sees the portrait again. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of touched on this. Oh, already, sorry. The whole page. No. That's okay. But I kind of want to go back to the whole like three thing because mm-hmm. the one thing we haven't touched actually two things we even touched on are first of all the title, which you know what I'm talking about, and yeah. then. The three instances of music in the movie. Yes, dude. Thank you. Oh I was yes. I was looking for an in for the soundtrack because oh my god, oh, JL, go off dude. about this music, yeah, bro. Like, there's so much. I 
I yeah, you you said it in our chat. It's like a mu- or a movie with this little music cannot be this good. <laughs> but it <laughs> like, is. <laughs> but like, or should not be this good. Yeah, but like all the music in the movie is just the diegetic like sounds and like the the right in the middle of that bonfire scene. Oh my like, goodness! Literally, the whole lady on fire thing is. Um, I, that was insane. <laughs> we could spend so long just on that scene. That scene <laughs> blew my mind. Um, like it is shocking when when the music starts. Like I'm not even. Sh- it's I scary. Wasn't even, I, it, it was scary. I was like, I'm not sure what's going on because there, it's kind of this like creepy chanting that starts. The way that they the way that they introduced it reminded me of like the THX, like the yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. They, they like come in from this like Gregorian hum, and then it's like do 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 do. Yeah, that turns into a banger. Yeah, yeah, but like, oh yeah, it starts otherworldly. Sorry, Dale, keep going, please. I don't even know if I have anything more to say than that, man. Um, like, the, the, like, uh, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, the fire scene, like, well, the music's amazing, and then uh, we like. There, speaking of beauty of the film, we have to talk about the part where Marianne looks across the fire, and you can see the sparks in the uh... air, and you see, and you see Heloise, and. I've said this a million times. It's just that might be the most beautiful, the mu- most beautiful frame of the movie. Um, I don't know, but it's top three probably. <laughs> Doesn't that music kind of just crescendo and then just stop when it's yeah. like that still frame, right? Up yes, the, with, with the fire. Oh my god, that and was then, awesome. Yeah, and you get to you linger on it for a little bit, and then she passes out. But yeah, that it's the it's the frame that they're using as the um, the poster for the film, and it's. It's otherworldly. It's <laughs> just like jaw on floor yeah. right there for a whole minute. Oh my <laughs> yes. god! It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. And she catches on fire. Um, and uh, there's a really cool, like, very small part right after that where um, you know Heloise, her dress catches on fire. She falls to the ground. Marianne rushes over and like reaches down to help her up. And I was talking to Tyler about this. There's this, I guess you would say, a match cut. Like right after that, right. where where it transitions to um, Marianne help, like reaching out and helping her on the beach, like get down onto the sand, and they like look like Jedi. But um, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, so cool. it, it's such a cool transition. Um, but dude, we've got to talk about the actual like uh, the um, uh, the music at the end, the the orchestra score, like and how and really how that quick. was introduced. Yeah, we'll we'll pivot back to that. I want to say one more thing about the bonfire. So, um, I would say there's one other scene that, I mean, I haven't seen every movie ever, but there's one other scene that evoked the same feeling in me. And this is a movie that I think we're going to do next time. And I'm really excited to talk about, uh, it reminded me of the night dance scene, the sunset dance scene from burning. I still have to watch that. You know, I know you still have to watch it, Andy, so I won't spoil it, yeah. but JL, do you agree? Yeah. Okay, cool. Absolutely. That's all I need. That's all I need. It's incredible. The 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 well of emotions. It's just everything. Jaw on the floor. Like, yeah. Like basically screaming at my TV, how are you this amazing? <laughs> um sorry. And then the second use of music, uh, like you alluded to, is at the end, um, the second time that Eloise sees Mary or Marianne sees Eloise, my bad. Um, is at an orchestra concert. It's not really said where, probably uh, Milan, I would imagine. Yeah. And we get the best use of Vivaldi's Four Seasons that I think I've ever seen in a movie. 
Well, and, and wait, am I wrong? But Marianne was playing that. Yeah, Marianne was playing yeah, that earlier, which is which is what which which is what which is what makes it so emotional. Um, Marianne plays that song on the piano to Heloise earlier in the film, which is like one of that's that's also got to be one of the first times that you can really you really feel the tension between them in that scene where they're sitting next to each other at the piano. Um, she, and sits, Hel- she sits just close enough, yeah. right? And and Heloise, that's one of the first times you see Heloise smile too. Which is cool, um, uh, but it's I, I I didn't really see that coming either. To be honest, I mean the reinclusion was awesome, but I didn't. I, maybe I should have, but I didn't know that song was going to come back. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. It was awesome the way they did that. Um, JL, you talked about it earlier. The way that the scene, yeah, just lingers. Doesn't oh, cut. So good. It, and oh my god. And that's the thing. Like that kind of reminded me. I don't know if you guys watched the newest or the last season of BoJack, but there's like they have that scene at the end where you kind of like you just linger there, and then you mm-hmm. get to watch their faces, and you want them to like turn. You you desperately <laughs> it was like please just look or something. But then you know you like you can even see it on her face, and then like in our like as a viewer as well, you're like okay like. I'm really sad about this, but now like slowly as the song progresses, she's like tears are drying up and she's re- actually enjoying it and like coming to terms with everything. And I just thought that was like, that was just a roller coaster right there. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I think there's like probably a bunch of different ways that she could have ended this movie. Um, and I loved what she did. I thought it was perfect. I thought in every way I, thought, I loved how long it lingered at the end. Like it really made it hit home. Extremely like, mature, seasoned filmmaking decision mm-hmm. to include those last two scenes. Like you said, I think a um, not necessarily a less experienced filmmaker, but someone who has less to say about love and romance would have ended it with the turnaround. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, incredibly, incredible decision. Incredible yeah. stuff. Um, uh, I guess concluding thoughts i don't know yeah let's let's wrap on uh portrait of a lady on fire um uh mike oh man i'll try to keep it short but one of the most beautiful movies i've ever seen from the dialogue to just the aesthetic um you know it says a lot about the oppression that women went through at that time um specifically if you were a gay woman or someone Mm -hmm. with a you know uh, sexuality that wasn't accepted at the time and then it you know it, it also I think underappreciated part of that is the whole maid storyline and her storyline with the abortion that she has to go through and how she had to hide that um, it, and go through really rough really rough bad like, conditions to actually yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yeah it's a beautiful movie it's it's a perfect film about romance. It's believable. It's uh, just a work of art. Uh, it's, that's all I can say. You have to watch this movie. Um, and I think it has a lot of rewatchability too, to be honest. I'd watch it again. Yep. JL, what'd you think? Um, yeah, I mean, all that historical stuff that Andy said. And then, you know, I guess just the, um, the merit of all that. Um, and then, I don't know, I just got a lot to say about love, man. Yeah, it's it's perfect. And uh, also, timestamp one uh, hour and thirty two minutes forty four seconds is uh, <laughs> is uh, 
is a, I don't even know what to say about that one, but that's oh, a little yeah. oh, the time stamp. I thought you were talking about the timestamp of the podcast. Me too. You're talking about the timestamp of the movie. Oh my God. It actually lined up. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. No, it, like, like that was like you're within like two minutes. Yeah. That was unbelievable. There, that was a, unbelievable. Yeah, that's absurd. Yeah, I thought he was talking about the podcast. No, I was like, what, what did I say at one thirty two? Like, what are we editing out? Big. Uh, there's a part. They say on Letterboxd, big vagina. Yeah, there's, there's a part. Yeah, there's a part where I was like, wow, I didn't know they could show that. Like even <laughs> like you know, funny. I was like sitting here in the basement watching, and like on my iPad, and I'm just like, chilling on my bed. I see it on the screen for a second. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of normal. Like this is a movie, dude. Wait, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, that's what, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's exactly. Thing about what I uh, about me. Yeah. <laughs> no, Funny, I mean. funniest, most creative use of a vagina in cinema since the lighthouse? Question <laughs> <Yes>. mark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even oh, though man. this movie technically came out first, but all right, uh, yeah, um, yeah. So I'll give my uh, my closing remarks on it. Um, basically, I think it's a perfect film. I think uh, everything about it is is wonderful and is a treat. Um, my jaw was on the floor for most of the movie, basically, um, and I think. Um, Cinema like this comes along very rarely, but mm-hmm. we were lucky enough in 2019 to where four movies that I loved as much as this one came out. And I think that's just yeah. a real treat. I think this was a great way to cap off the decade, a great romance movie to cap off the decade. I think um, everyone can find something to adore about this movie. Um, everyone with a soul or a conscience, I guess I should say. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, I think this is how, if you want to support women in cinema, I think this is, this is the movie you need to watch. This is the movie you need to champion. Yeah. This, this is such a powerfully, um, yeah, it's such a powerful statement. Yep. I love it. And I love it too. I think, I think we all, I mean, we all gave it five stars, right? Like yeah, easily five yeah. stars. <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm like hesitant sometimes to give movies a perfect score. So like for us, for a brief moment, I had it for, at 4.5. And then the more I talked to you guys, I was like, I literally, like, I can't not give this a perfect score. <laughs> like, I have to give it's this a perfect wonderful. score. It's it's perfect. It's wonderful. Um, but Excellent. real quick, I want to say thank you to Tyler Asbell. He's the one that really pushed for this podcast to happen. So, oh, uh, stop. No, I mean for real. So, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, round of applause right there. Uh, <laughs> crowds cheering! Yay! <laughs> and if if. Uh, to all you future listeners, if you if you sat through this whole thing, thank you so much. Or even yeah, if you only sat through you. part of it, yeah. Before we before we wrap, though, I want to do our, our question. Uh, oh my god! Section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, as fun as talking about movies and uh, you know dissecting movies is, uh, sometimes it can be fun to just answer you know hypotheticals about well, what ifs, what ifs, hypotheticals. Just have some just just a fun question time. Uh, so at the end here, we're gonna we're gonna answer a question that I stole from the Criterion uh, channel, which also reminds me. Super glad that I pre-ordered Portrait of a Lady on Fire on Criterion Collection. Oh. Very glad to have this on Blu-ray. The cover that they're using for it is immaculate. I'm pretty sure it's one of the paintings. Um, but yeah, 
Very glad I bought that Dude, without having that. even without having <laughs> even seen the movie. Um, so I hope COVID nineteen does not delay the production of that disc for too long because I want that as soon as possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. This is such a fun question that you have. Yeah, I, I really I saw this last night on the Criterion Channel's Instagram, and I was like, oh my god, this is it's a gift from heaven. This is so perfect. Um, so the question is very simply: What is your dream double feature? What two movies do you think would go awesome paired back to back, watched in a row, etc.? So JL, what'd you pick? Let me go. Since I'm a uh, pretty lighthearted and fun boy right here. Um, I have, I actually have four movies, so I picked well, I a couple of, of <laughs> <laughs> I have my, my buddy double feature of hot fuzz, one of my faves, and then immediately just watch Swiss army man. Oh, after that. oh my God. That'd be it's, so fun. So that'd fun. be a fun, fun buddy feature. But then also since we're out here in quarantine, the post-apocalypse double feature, baby. Ooh. Nausicaa of the Valley of the oh, Wind. Right, <laughs> right after that, watching Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's a good double feature. I have, you know, this is bad. I haven't seen Nausicaa, dude. That's so bad. I haven't watched it's, it yet. It should I'm be gonna, on HBO Max in, in like May or something. Or yeah. Just go on some random site online. That's I'm gonna do you one worse, Andy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna one lower you. Uh, I don't, I don't like Fury Road. <laughs> I know you don't. I know you don't. I know that's, a, I know that, I know that's a hot take of yours. It's oh. like probably like I don't know. I, yeah, yeah. I don't want to get too much into it. I guess we, can, we can talk about it on a later episode. Yeah. Are that curious. But we should have a hot takes. We should have a hot takes hot episode. Take episode that'd be fun. I feel like it we would just gr- be. It would just be me looking like a film bro. It would, snob it would, it would just be. Time. It would just be. I don't Tyler's, want to do that. It would just be. Ty- it would just be Tyler saying Fury Road is bad, and then us going off, <laughs> and, and the three of us being like, "Oh, the Avengers is." okay yeah yeah you're right we we, we look really bad (laughs) yeah i don't want to look like chad film bros but like you know it we end up we will end up looking like that because that's just what our tastes are (laughs) exactly anyway um great picks jl andy what you got okay so um this was really hard for me to choose and i feel like this answer will change all this answer would change depending on the day but considering we're in quarantine I think this would be a really fun pairing to watch with my friends or with anybody right now. And uh, coincidentally, both of these movies are from 1993. And so, so I chose uh, Groundhog Day starring Bill Murray, which I think is just a beautiful movie. I think it's emotional. I think it's funny. And I I, I don't know if this, this might be a hot take. I think it's Bill Murray's best performance. I'm just saying right there. It's a hot take. I think it's his best performance. I think it's better than, and it, I think it's better than anything else he's done. I don't care. Um, but <laughs> my one of my double feature movies will have to disagree with yeah. you. But anyway, uh, and um, then uh, next after that, I'm saying dazed and confused for the next movie after that. Yes. So I and I think this is a fun pairing because they're both just really enjoyable movies that are funny. Um, the characters are great in both. I mean, Matthew McConaughey yeah. and Days of Confused is iconic. And we don't even need to break out the all right, all right, all right. I think they're just like, knows. yeah, I think, I think, uh, Groundhog Day is perfect for quarantine. Cause like, you know, we're living the same day over and over again. <laughs> and then, and then same pants, same, same shirt, same shirt. me and JL out here wearing the same shirts we wore yesterday. And then, um, uh, I do a beard. So, you know, yeah. grow and then, a beard and shave it off. <laughs> and then days and confused because 
Um, I think it's just kind of what I wish I could be doing right now, hanging out with my friends and having a good time. Just so, it. Yeah. yeah. So those, those are my choices. Yeah, as the weather gets nicer, we we just want to do more dazed and confused stuff. Yeah, yep. <laughs> for sure. Okay, um, I'm a little embarrassed because I didn't I didn't take it as fun as you guys. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Um, so I I have a lot of movies that I think would make great double features. Oh, you're, oh I know what you're gonna okay. say. I now My, know which one. <laughs> no, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start with what I'm calling the identity um, double feature. And so I think uh, Persona, which is my personal favorite movie of all time, probably. Um, I think I said that earlier. But yeah, so I would pick Persona, Ingmar Bergman movie. We, You guys haven't seen that. No, that's no, on the list, though. It's yeah. on the list. It's on the list. Um, so I would do Persona, which is a movie about two women losing their minds together. And then I would either do Perfect Blue yep. or <laughs> Enemy. Right. Yep. Right. <laughs> what, what, either of those two paired with Persona, you would like, you would go home and look at the mirror and be like, "Am I even me? Like, what is life?" <laughs> um, Perfect Blue, Satoshi Kon, uh, eh, top five animated movie of all time. I think so. Yeah, I think I so. That movie's absolutely incredible. Um, Enemy, Denis Villeneuve, uh, wonderful, wonderful movie. Jake Gyllenhaal, my boy. Uh, shout out Jake G. He kills it in that. Um, and then my romance, but sad romance um, double feature is Lost in Translation, yeah. the best Bill Murray role. <laughs> and uh, no, I can't. I can't say it's the best Coppola movie because, like, The Godfather is probably better than or Apocalypse Now too. Whatever, they're probably better than Lost in Translation. But my favorite Coppola movie. Lost in Translation, the best Bill Murray role, the best soundtrack of all time. My Bloody Valentine kills that shit. So good. So good. And like Jesus and Mary Chain is on there. Oh my God. It's so good. good. It's set in Tokyo. It rocks. It's the best. You know what? I'm just going to say this real quick. I can't say, I can't say that it's um, Bill Murray's best performance anymore because another really tragic thing. I haven't seen Lost in Translation yet. (laughs) So I I can't, I can't say that. I can't say that. Put it on the list, baby. I, I, I I didn't even think of that. And then I realized like, wow, that is a hot take because Lost in Translation exists and I haven't yeah. seen it. <laughs> and I think that's probably the best scar. Ah, ooh, Under the Skin is really good too. Anyway, um, so yeah, the, the, the love double feature, uh, Lost in Translation and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Mm-hmm. What a oh, perfect great. back-to-back, right? Oh my yeah. God, so good. Charlie Kaufman, my boy, um, going in, yeah. And then the third um, double feature that I came up with is a near and dear one to my heart. I'm calling this one Movies with the Boys. <laughs> Nightcrawler. Oh. Ex Machina. Oh, I was thinking, I almost, I, I, one of the ones that I was considering was Ex Machina in, my, in mine. But yep. yes. And that's, that's two movies that the three members of this podcast watched together. Mm-hmm. In my yep. basement, in in Andy's basement, <laughs> in, in my in my old uh, neighborhood house, yeah, uh, <laughs> years ago. <laughs> so yeah, that's the that's the nostalgic back to back, which I I honestly think they'd pair. No, that would be an amazing yeah, pairing. Fun. That was it's like thrillers, right? Yeah, yeah. high octane. That was accidentally like 
uh, a very film bro moment night. We had a great double feature that night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, yeah. They're, they're great movies. Fantastic, yeah. I actually, film bro moment, I have the uh, the Ex Machina script. Oh, uh, the, I the want A24 that. Yeah, I want it so bad. I, I don't beautiful. have any A24 merch and I want some so bad. I am so mad I don't have any Uncut Gems merch at all. <laughs> Wish I could. Uh, <laughs> JL just held up that shirt. That shirt is so Uncut nice. Shirt. Howie. <laughs> uh, Pickle Howard. <laughs> yeah. Hello. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, yeah. What I was going to say earlier. Howard Baskin is the new number one Howard over Howie Blinn. Oh, but actually, wow. not at all. Not at all. But Howie, <laughs> Blinn, Howie Blinn forever, baby. That's the yes. man. Yeah, um, Tyler, Tyler, I want to see you come on the next pod with a Furby chain on. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, they iced out the Furby. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do the oh, whole man. next podcast is Howard. How about that? Yes. Um, all right folks um we're running out of things to talk about i think and i can feel my voice getting that was a lot of fun at least i thought (laughs) (laughs) thank you guys for being a part of this i think this is the start of something uh really fun uh the plan for the listeners at home we are going to try and do this on a bi-weekly basis however given the fact that we are locked inside with only our thoughts we are probably going to end up doing this more often, I would think. I'd say so. Yeah. yeah. So the plan right now, bi-weekly. Um, but if we can put out more content than that in the meantime, we definitely will. Yeah. We'll keep you in the loop. Before we get out of here, let's plug socials. Okay. So where? Yeah, here, I'll, I'll, I'll start because, um, yeah, I, I know my stuff. So on Letterboxd, I am... Tyler Asbell, T-Y-L-E-R-A-Z-B-E-L-L, no spaces. Uh, my Instagram's private. I should probably change that, but yep, same thing. Tyler Asbell, no spaces. Uh, and then I'm not going to dox myself on Twitter yet. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, JL, you got it. Well, I probably will because all of my social media is... Mine's all the uh, same, basically. Yeah, JL underscore Lacar. L A C A R, and then my letterbox is Taki Kun, <laughs> T A K I underscore K U N. And uh, so my Instagram and my Twitter are Andy underscore Mulak, which is M U L A C H. It's a weird last name. It's like Czechoslovakian. So <laughs> it's, um, yeah. And then my letterbox is Andy Mulak, um, no spaces. So just A N D Y. M-U-L-A-C-H. Yeah, and we're pretty uh we're all pretty active on on all social media, yeah. I would say. Follow us for good content. It's not always movie related. You know, we have other interests. Uh John's specifically. Talk <laughs> a lot about John's. Um uh, music. But, uh, yeah. music, yeah, lots of music. Yeah. Um, Mine's like all anime to be honest. So if you want that, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we should we should totally do a film scores episode. Where yeah. we just talk about the best scores in cinema and why Blade Runner is the best. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, no. yeah. don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed that my Twitter content's mostly been like Animal Crossing lately. Um, <laughs> that checks out. Where I do. I, 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 what else to do inside? I do switch it up occasionally. 
All right, uh, folks. I'm going to say we, uh, we're done here. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful evening. And keep it tuned right here to see what's now screening. Yep. Thank you, guys. I got to go watch Burning. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye. All right. Oh, right. Pause that was really good, dude. That was nice. Dude, is, re- it just, is, is it just me or did that go really well? That went really well. That was Are, <laughs> hold on, I'm going to pause my uh, thing now. I'm just going to say this is done. Dude, I want-